Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Son of a Blitch podcast. I'm your host, George Blitch. And today I had a wonderful chat with Jason Phelps from Phelps Game Calls. You know, Jason has been designing for quite a long time now, well over 10 years, some of the best game calls in the industry. You know, he started out kind of hunting elk and, and turkey and kind of making those calls. They've gone on to make deer calls. Uh, there's some waterfowl. You know, I, I know I, I use one of their elk, I mean, their uh, owl calls right now. I uh, want to be able to use some elk calls. I just haven't jumped into that yet. Uh, he talked about a woodpecker call that they're going to be uh, producing out here in this next year that's going to be able to help kind of locate some turkeys, get some shot gobbles going that way. Uh, and they've done mouth calls, pot calls, uh, your traditional calls. I mean, this is one, too, that they put out last year, the Akern, uh, with Clay Newcomb there uh, and designing that for whitetail. It's kind of got a double-ended, uh, you know, call for, you know, different grunts and bleats. Man, it, it is phenomenal. There, there's so many wonderful things that they put out. Highly suggest you go check out Phelps Game Calls and see which call is going to be right for you. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this. We, we had just had a great chat about, you know, Jason's passion kind of how he views making these calls, what he wants to do and making sure he's, you know, putting out something that he's really proud of. It's going to have your name on it. You want to make sure it's great. And, you know, without a doubt, Phelps game calls, everything I've ever checked out uh, is well-deserved to have his stamp of approval and his name on it. Wonderful, wonderful calls. Um, you know, if you guys got any questions for him, please leave them in the comments below and I'll make sure that, you know, we can try to see if he can address those. And if you got any questions, you know, the contacts on here, uh, look in the description below on how you can follow and, uh, you know, get in touch with Jason and the team over there. Uh, once again, thank you all for listening. If you haven't yet, please like subscribe, share this with all your friends. And without further ado, here is the podcast with Jason Phelps. Enjoy. Hey, Jason, how you doing today, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me, George. Dude, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. I'm glad you're here. So, you know, I, I figure one thing is the best way to start is kind of the genesis of your outdoor experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, um, you know, your your beginning hunting world and kind of how you got into the outdoors? Yeah, so um, family, generational hunters, right? As far back as anybody can remember. Um, my dad grew up in a small town of PL Washington, where I now reside. My mom grew up in a small town of Rochester, Washington, about 45 minutes from here. Um, spent the first seven or eight years of my life in Rochester and hunting season was a big deal. You would go out and stay at grandma and grandpa's for, you know, even though we're only 45 minutes away, like you would stay, the, you know, you'd stay the whole three day weekend or Friday, Saturday, Sunday out here. And it was just a big thing for our family. You know, I can remember like the night before that feeling of being around the round tables, what we called, you know, all the guys would be scouting different areas and you'd all get back together. Like, what do you see? Well, if somebody didn't see anything, like maybe somebody saw more than, and you would just like, you would, you would. And I just, I loved it as a little kid, just kind of watching, you know, from two, three, four years old, it was just cool to see grandpa and all my uncles and, you know, the, the hunting party sit there. And, um, from a very young age, deer hunting, scouting, like we, it, it was as much as I could go or as, as if there was a seat for me, we were, we were in that seat, you know, um, out there in the woods, you know, back then I didn't spot a lot, but you were always going along and, um, we, we were out there. Uh, and I think I passed my hunter's ed in fourth grade or I don't know what age that puts you at, but even before then, like, you know, you, you got grandpa, you'd go out with grandpa and grandma and, and I can remember being like seven years old and grandpa, like trying to get me to shoot his deer. You know, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, grandpa's like, I don't care about my tag. Like he just wants, you know, one of the grandkids to shoot his deer for him. And I can remember like that all trying to happen and it didn't pan out, but um, just guys that were loggers are out in the woods already They're They kind of lived with the animals. Um, 
it was just something that was very natural, right? I didn't, they didn't have to talk me into hunting. Um, you know, I was like, I wanted my BB gun as soon as it was just very natural, um, very good woodsman. So as, as things got older, uh, you know, we started to deer hunt there in, in fourth grade and, uh, you know, out in the West, for those that don't know here in Southwest Washington, we have blacktail deer, um, and then we've got Roosevelt elk. Um, and, and that was primarily all we hunted, you know, bear, there's a lot of bear here, but my family wasn't huge into bear hunting. We would go, um, more as a deer and elk scouting, you know, mission, yeah. but if there were bear there and somebody had a tag, um, and so that was kind of my upbringing. Um, I was very upset though, that I could deer hunt, but I couldn't elk hunt when I first got my license. It was, we're going to buy you a deer tag and I'm like, well, why are you guys all, it was kind of back to that round table. Like you'd go back down there, everybody's down there elk season, but then I had to sleep in the next day, right? You didn't get the invite on the elk hunt and like, man, there's, this thing must be real cool. Or, you know, it was reserved for the grownups and, and it really kind of uh, frustrated me. Um, so there was always this thing about elk hunting. And I think that's probably why it's a, I've elevated it now because from a very young age, like this elk hunting is something that you have to, you have to achieve or get to a level or have enough responsibility to not get lost while you're out in the middle of the woods, you know, like yeah, deer hunting was very truck based for us. Mm -hmm. Elk hunting was very like wander for five hours through the woods is what it looked like to me from a young kid, um, you know, and, and know your way and have some navigational skills and, you know, being able to hit a certain pickup spot and, and all of that. So what was that looking like for like why they actually had, you know, that, that rite of passage, what was it about? Was it a certain age? Was it a criteria that they had, Hey, you got to be able to do this. Like, what was that, that kind of, they hesitated bringing you in until that point. So I think it's the way that we hunt elk. You will glass clear cuts here. So I don't know if your, your audience knows what clear cuts are out here in industrial timberland. We basically cut timber every 40 to 60 years. Um, the, the majority of their feeds in the clear cut. So on elk hunts, you would check the clear cuts first, but then very quickly, if you've been patterning or scouting elk, you would jump into the timber. Well, I think, I think they didn't want me to have to take along or if I wasn't able to like it in fourth or fifth grade, you know, as a 10 year old or to, to like find my own way or them to have to like deal with you just sitting in the truck for hours. Right. They didn't want to think about that. Yeah. So until you were able to basically get pointed in a direction, like hunt down this Ridge, go down there, figure it out, come back out, walk out the grade, whatever it may be. Um, so I think it was more of a, of a, they didn't want, I didn't want it to be like a, a bother to them yeah. um, or they didn't want to have to have the responsibility of dealing with a, a young kid why they're all out hunting very hard in the timber kind of chasing elk down the way that we 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 hunt elk around here so when did that transition happen to where you were brought in with them so we started to be able to hunt like freshman sophomore year of high school yeah. but I, I was tricked i didn't realize that you got to hunt opening weekend but then you had football practice for like the rest of the season, right? So you, 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 boy, they were taking their entire vacations during elk season. And that's where they did the majority of, of, of the, the killing, um, you know, of elk was during that week, like opening weekend, we would kill some, but I'd get to hunt two days and then not get to hunt at all. Um, and so we actually, in our area, they were all rifle elk hunters to start with. They started buying like me and my cousin, um, muzzleloader tags. Cause that gave them more time, a different season. And then they didn't have to, they still got to let us elk hunt, but we didn't have to worry about, um, you know, being running around with them when a rifle season hit, um, which was a good entry. It, you know, we got, they got to focus on us. We were in more elk because the entire hunting crews were looking for one or two, you know, guys. And, and, and it really kind of gave us a, a good, um, entry to elk hunting. But what it really did was open to my eyes to elk still rutting 
at that time. You know, rifle hunting around here is a complete silent spot and stock timber hunt game where I'm like, these elk make noise and they will come into calls. And you started to watch like the Primo's Truth series back then. And you're like, these guys are calling elk in. These things are still bugling during this muzzleloader season. Like maybe I should add the ability to call. And that's really kind of what sparked the fire. So I'm actually glad they threw me in a muzzleloader hunt first because it really exposed me to, you know, the elk and the ability to call some of these animals in at, so at a young age. You, you, I mean, I, I know that you kind of, you went to, to college, you got your civil engineering degree and you, you kind of had a few different things that you had done as far as, uh, you know, working there with the state. I know you kind of did a, a bunch of work there with, uh, you know, I guess you did like some, some bridge inspection. Yep. There was a bunch of things in the kind of transportation world. And then you eventually decided to start making your own calls. And because I, I guess, you know, that was probably the, the uh, you know, the spark of that idea of, hey, seeing how they can come in, watching those old early Primos videos and things. And then you decided at one point in time, you were going to go ahead and, and throw your hat in the ring and give it a try for yourself. Was it a personal thing first? Like, I want to just have a challenge of being able to make this and do this and see, or was it kind of like a, a business idea off of the start or kind of, you know, a combination thereof? No, I was, I still tell people this day like i'm a horrible business guy i've learned like i'm better now but in the beginning like i was the worst business guy because i didn't it was all ran run on passion right so a business guy would sit down like i need to make this much money i need to be you know in the positive by two or three years you know i was just i was going backwards you know i i was i was just wanting to get get stuff out there and and at first it was just like can i build one like yeah i didn't start the business with an intent for anything but like can i build one that makes a sound that sounds like an elk and then you i sold a few gave a few away the buddy is like hey just give these a try let me know if they work um i knew they were going to work just from the sound that was coming out of them um you know got some pretty good response and then it was just it really just cascaded from there um no business plan though um bought a lathe, um, bought some wood, you know, figured out a way to modify some tone boards that were already in existence. You know, it, it, I came from, uh, from very humble beginnings. Um, you know, I traded away like my first two elk sets of elk antlers for the lathe and some of the original wood and the tooling just to get started, you know, and that kind of, I would never trade it, but it's like, Oh, I wish I could somehow get those horns back, but they've already been turned into calls or dog chews or something by now. Um, but that was kind of my very, and just worked out in the shop and, um, got I there's some forums like back then there was Monster Mealy's like Hunting Washington my local mm -hmm. forums and just I was a, a kid with courage I guess yeah I, even though I was mid twenties back then but I, I wasn't afraid for somebody just told me no so like the 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 guy that owned Mountain Me or Monster Mealy is like hey man would you care if I gave away a few of these knowing that people would get to see the post and maybe ask me on the side to buy some um, same with Hunting Washington um, I reached out to back then the you know, I hate the word influencers or guys on that, you know, that were being paid attention to like, Hey, would you be willing if I sent you a call? Um, maybe I'll put your logo on it or whatever. And, and I, so I was just building a lot of these, you know, for, for free, um, started to take off a little bit within the first three or four years and, and got some traction. And I knew in my mind at that point, like if I'm going to make a real go at it, you can't just build wood body elk calls. Cause that's what I started with just external cow calls. You're gonna have to like use your engineering skills and start to design some some uh, original designs, right? New bugle tubes, um, diaphragm frame designs, tooling to build the diaphragms in a way that's very consistent, um, and then it really just cascaded from there. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, I'm very transparent. 
anybody that's used an elk diaphragm knows that there's a pallet plate that Primo's had the patent for forever. We knew by doing some research that the patent was coming up in, I believe, 2016. I, I started to work in about 2014 on stuff like that. And that was really kind of the big break was, was that amp diaphragm really performed better yeah. than anything else out there, really consistent. And we designed, we were using like some old kids, uh, fat bats, you know, everybody used to play wiffle ball oh, yeah. with those. And so at the time we were just modifying those, it was actually a blessing in disguise when fat bat called and said, Hey, our mold's no longer good. You're, we're not gonna be able to sell these to you anymore. So it forced me to design a bugle tube with a little more functionality than just using the bat and everything kind of hit, I would say in 2016, um, everything clicked, everything hit. And then that really kind of gave me my, my, um, I would say legit jump start. So we were six or seven years kind of dabbling and finding good success um, with the diaphragms and stuff. But when we brought the amp diaphragm and that unleashed beagle tube out for the first time, um, really skyrocketed the, the, the company. And then from there we, we dabbled in Turkey, started to do some custom deer stuff and then, um, you know, ran really, really well and, and grew exponentially for those four years into about 2020 um, started to work with Meat Eater a little bit. And then, um, you know, towards the end of 2020, kind of they made a pitch to to see. We were going to do a turkey line together. Um, mm -hmm. That was my proposal. Let's do turkey call line. We'll collab on it. And they were all for it. And uh, as, as we penciled out numbers and thought what we could do, they're like, well, hey, this might look better if we just own the whole thing. I was really reluctant at the beginning, right? It's, ah, this is my baby. I've, yeah, I've, yeah. Grown, I've grown it here for for 11 years and and it's really close to me i've i've employed friends and family like i did it the way i wanted to and uh started to meet with them and and got the the impression or understanding that we'd be able to continue on and it it ended up being a good decision for me and my wife like sometimes you don't want to give up ownership or control but we looked at it in a way like does this um does this take care of you in in life and financially and um one thing for me that it's tough, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I had never really thought about the money that was coming from this. It was it was all driven on passion. The, the whole business side still hadn't really taken over. Yeah, I was better at accounting. I was better at profits and losses. Right, you just have to naturally yeah, get just better from the at years that. of doing it. Sure, yeah. But I had never really thought like, what's this thing worth? What's how do you value a company? You know, and, and all this stuff came to me, and I'm like, man, I don't. I don't even want to put a number to it. I just love this. I love growing it. I love being able to reach people that maybe weren't good elk or turkey callers or deer callers or strategists and, and fixing that or, or helping them or giving them a, a tidbit that helped and, and uh, you know, building those educational pieces. I love to just, I love to hunt. And this was kind of a, a thing that allowed me to do it a little bit more, right? I, I had some, I had some extra money to, to go hunt and, and do this or go on more trips or be able to afford to leave work for a couple extra weeks and not get paid, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, meat eater came along and I'm like, I don't know what this is worth. I don't even know how this process goes. And, uh, that was kind of the point where I had to get serious about the business side and, and really dig into the books for the last few years. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it's been fun. Like, with it with an and some people don't understand like with when your brain works like an engineer you're always you're always like spinning ideas like would that work would this work and so i just i love being a call designer and, and i think in my own mind like we we've went very far with the calls now but like i've got other ideas like different spots within you know as i'm a hunter like well this thing doesn't work exactly like i like it to and this thing and so you're i'm always 
thinking and wanting to modify or tweak gear to, to work better for me. And that's just, uh, unfortunately I can't ever shut it off. So you're, you go to bed, like spinning ideas yes. in your head, you know, and, and that's <laughs> that. So that's, that's kind of how the calls went through. I mean, there's a lot more to the story, but that's kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. And, um, it, it's been fun, um, fun and frustrating, but, uh, you know, like the, the uh, very proud of like the easy sucker, the amp design, uh-huh. um, like all these things that were more like there, we didn't reinvent the wheel. Like we, we invented the wheel in some of those cases, like things that hadn't been used in those sort of ways. And, um, you know, those are, those are like some of those things I like to hang my hat on, like that hadn't been done yet to that point in that way or that easy. Um, and that was one thing, um, I learned early on is there's some really good callers and, and they can make any call sound good. But what I really focused on is be a good enough designer that you can make these things easy enough to use for anybody, make these things easy enough to use and quality enough. Like I can make very easy to use elk calls, but sometimes they lack in sound quality or volume or one of these things. So that was really what I set forth to do after about 2016. If I'm going to do a design, I want it to number one sound as good as anything else, but be very, very easy for the user. Um, And some people have said we've made it too easy on some things, but it's in the end, I'm just trying to give people the tools um, to use. And and, um, when we brought out the easy bugler, for instance, um, people that hadn't been able to bugle, like to get those emails back, like this literally changed my experience or this changed the way I hunt or what I'm confident in doing. Um, Like I say, it may be a little cliche and people are like, oh, it's easy to say that. But like sometimes that meant more to me than any money that you're collecting from this business is um, like. You yeah, know, you you made it, a it, significant it, difference. You yeah. made someone else buy an extra freezer. <laughs> yep, yeah, and and that's that that honestly meant more to me at that point than any money you could receive off of a product. Like I, yeah. I like that that was payment enough um, for anything that I was doing. But you know, building good good product, we've we've tried to bunk the trend as much as possible um, to bring as much like USA. Um, manufactured, like very important to me. We haven't been able to do it all, which, you know, we're very transparent about, Um, but we've did, we've put as much of our money back into the, to us built products as possible, Um, which has been tough at times because our our price sometimes reflects it. Um, But it's something I'm willing to do. And and we just have to try it, see if people are willing to to pay for that, you know, because it seems like people are beating their drum Anytime you post something like, oh, we'd rather pay more for USA. And then sometimes you bring in a more expensive product and like, that's overpriced, you know? And I'm like, well, I can't win. So you, you try to balance it. You try to, I, I, I take a very, you know, uh, an approach where I step back. Where's everybody else at in the market? Can mm-hmm. we do this? Um, yeah, it, it's been fun. I, I've learned a lot along the way. Um, very, still very passionate. So that's, it's awesome, right? If you're passionate about something, um, nothing really ever fizzles out. So it's, I haven't lost my interest. I'm, I'm excited today designing new calls or trying to think of what can come next as I used to be. I just got a lot more on my plate now. Um, yeah. so I, I, yeah, I try to design I, my design times are a lot smaller, but, uh, yeah, I, I love, like, there are times I wish I could just shut off email, shut off, um, you know, my own podcast, whatever it may be, and just like get into the design trench for a week or two, because I think that's where like the magic comes from. If if you don't have time to devote, um, you know, just like anything in life, right? If you don't have time to devote to a specific product or goal or, or let you kind of be able to to put all your ideas down on paper and follow them through. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes I think I'm not doing as good a job designing right now because I am so busy and everything else. But uh yeah, it, it's fun. I, I enjoy it. I love coming to work every day. Um, 
it's my house is about 80 feet from from the headquarters here at least so it's nice. like my commute I'm, I'm tied to it all the time i love getting up i love going to work um and and i know it's tough because there's not enough jobs out there but it's you you find something you love to do I, it, you've heard it's so cliche mm-hmm. but everybody says it like I, I haven't worked a day you know for the last five years um working here it's just it's awesome to get up and, and just be um surrounded by everything you love to do and you want to be involved in um there are times where i remind myself though in this business that first and foremost i love to hunt i love being a hunter i love what it does for the freezer and for my family and and the pursuit um i'm i'm very open that i also um there's a sporting aspect to it you know being uh you know an athlete at a certain level through high school and like i challenge myself and i challenge you know um but but yeah it, it wraps up as a whole package i love i eat deer and elk four or five times a week um i like to challenge myself um out there in the woods i love just getting away the adventure and so mixing business with like my favorite thing to do was yeah. tough and and i i oftentimes step back and remind myself as i'm getting mad at a business decision or i'm getting mad at a contract or um don't let it like ruin or even impact at all your, your passion for hunting and, and what you're doing and so i've been able to draw a pretty hard line and keep things very separated there which is really you know you, you see a lot of guys get in here and get burnt out um on everything going on and i've been able to maintain like man i'm not i'm just getting away to hunt with my family i'm getting away to hunt with my family and friends like old school deer and elk camp and i've been able to maintain a little bit of that which is very important to me to not turn a camera on not turn a mic on during the hunt and just like let's just go do this for what it is and um so there, there's always a balance yeah yeah you have to produce some content to help sell calls you know and sure, but, but sure. Uh, we, we've struck a really good balance and um been able to really kind of keep that fire lit for for why we do it and and how we do it and uh yeah it's it's been a fun ride to to this point that's great man well i'm glad you're able to manage that and compartmentalize those things too because i've I've definitely seen some folks with burnout and things are feeling like you're always having to do content it's great to be able to sometimes just shut it off and spend that time with your family and your friends in the outdoors and be able to kind of create that balance so that you can go back and be able to go full tilt yep. whenever you need to. Um, yep. I want to rewind back. I mean, there's a few things we're going to get into. I want to talk about your podcast. Um, you know, definitely the transition, some of the things you got coming up too with, um, with Phelps game calls. But when you were talking about when, you know, meat eater came in and you kind of ha- established that relationships um, and to where, you know, they, they kind of bought in and to the company there. And what was it like for you and in, in your role was the, what was the change there too? Cause I need mean, also, and maybe this is a good time to talk about the podcast. You know, you, you kind of came in, you know, very soon after that that acquisition or merger, however you're calling it, that that you then became, uh, you know, put on the headset and starting to record and, and talk about everything and kind of, you know, doing the cutting the distance uh, a podcast. But I was kind of curious what your role was like then. Did that allow you more flexibility? Did you, were you able to hone in and just create, you know, new calls and new designs? Or did that also bring other responsibilities such as the podcast or maybe, you know, producing content more than maybe you did before. What did that look like and how are you creating that balance? How do you feel about that once that has, you know, those, those two mergers came into play? Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing I liked with the legacy move was, was the main reason we went to meet eater. Like, I feel like this brand can get my name and my products to a different level. Um, so that was kind of the, the, the main reason, um, we went into it. And so talking with, 
um, the two individuals at Meat Eater as this process was going on, like what do your duties look like? Who handles what? And, and they came to me with this idea that we have a lot of support, right? If you don't like ordering everything, you just want to do design, like we'll have an operations team that will help you and we'll have a finance team that will make sure, you know, bills are paid. And um, so it all sounded very good on paper. We have an accounting team that will pay your bills, collect your bill, you know, all the money. And it sounded good, but in reality, I was everything for Phelps game calls was in between my ears, right? Like right. I knew it all and it was not easier, not saying that it's a bad idea, to, but it yeah. wasn't as it didn't look as good as it did on paper. I had to be very involved in all of those for a very long time. Um, more so to the point where I'm like, well, now I'm not only just able to do it, I've got to teach somebody who our yeah. vendor is, what these part numbers are, how we order this, what our specs are. And so there was actually a lot more work at the beginning, which kind of caught me off guard. I was, you don't go into it expecting like easy street, but you go in like, well, this should be, my life should be a lot easier. It wasn't, it was, it was more difficult for a while. Um, went into there, uh, was more involved for at least the first year, probably into the second year. And then the one thing, um, meat eater had a lot of changes from 21 to 24, both administratively. Matter of fact, is I was my company was getting bought from Meat Eater. We had a new CEO that wasn't really involved in it, and so like, and then shortly thereafter, the VP of Finance and the VP of Hunt Fish left Meat Eater like six months in, and that's the only two people I knew. So, like, revolving chairs and, and almost unsupervised or un, which which I didn't need a lot of supervision. I made good, sound business decisions. We were always in the black. Like, didn't need any help there. But like, right? Yeah, hey, uh, we want to put a PO in. That's a pretty big chunk of money. Like. Do I need approval? Can I just sign off on that? You know, and, yeah. and there were some unknowns. So we've we just recently changed teams again from that. And and so there's been some there's been some adjustments. I think everything's been for the better, but just like anything, when there's change, there's I gotta learn a new system, I've got to learn a new procedure. Um, so I would say to this day, like I haven't been able to just like settle into a routine yet. There's always changing ideas or changing processes. Um which is fine. If we're getting better, I'm fine with it. It's just, I haven't been able to just, uh, you know, I always, and I apologize to anybody that begs groceries, but like, I've always wanted my job to just be to the point where it's like begging groceries, right? Where it's like, I don't have to, you know, my engineering days, like designing a new bridge, it was never the same. You always had to show up and like, man, just, you would feel exhausted at the end of the day. Cause you're designing bridges and guardrails for this where like, my, towards the end of my engineering career, when, before I left the state, like I was able to just show up, do my work. I didn't have to think that hard. It was the same stuff over and over. Where you know now with meat eater, like I, I just haven't. I think once we get into like a steady, you know, year or two rut, and it's the same stuff just year after year, just new designs. Um, I'll be a lot more comfortable. We just haven't got there yet. Um, but yeah, the, the transition was nice. I like not having to to pay bills. Um, you know, on the other side, like one thing for people people might not realize is like it you're doing the same work but you don't get like the profit at the end which i knew but you don't really think you know it doesn't come it doesn't become a reality until then like i'm doing all the same work and the company's cranking along but like you're already you know it, it on paper it makes a lot of sense but like one thing that kind of hit me like oh don't get paid for that anymore you know you don't get any um <laughs> but yeah that, that process was was actually pretty pretty smooth um I love working with the meat eater team, like very, very talented people. Um, you know, looking a lot of guys or, or a lot of people might not know exactly, but 
and this is going to sound really pretentious and it's not meant to be like before when I, I like, I feel like at times, especially when it comes to calls or engineering or like, I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy in the room. Right. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm at a high level. And I went to a lot of these meat eater meetings. I'm like, right. I think I'm maybe the dumbest guy in this room, you know, maybe from a, from a, you know, the very educated, very smart, very good yeah. at their job, which I love being around because it's challenged me to get better. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing on the, on the meat eater uh, team. Like, if you got a guy doing social media, he's very, very good at it. If you got a, somebody, um, you know, editing a film, like they're very, very good at their job. Um, and I, I love having that support because you're, you're dealing with, with, you know, doers, people that are good at their job. And it's been fun to be able to like leverage their ideas off of them and, and execute. And, and that's been a real, a real fun, fun time to have, to have that group, that support. Well, it just seems to be a growing team of just great professionals all around. Anytime there's new acquisition, whether it's, you know, I mean, Dave Smith decoys and different, like it's just, there continues to expand. I, I'm always curious to see what's going to happen each next year. You know, obviously FHF gear, there's been you know, first light. There's that meat eater is just growing and uh, with, with great people, great companies. And so it's, yep. it's a wonderful thing to see moving into that idea of, you know, being in another space within Meat Eater, uh, having the cutting the distance, you know, Remy Warren ran that before the podcast, and then you kind of came in. Um, and I, I know the first one was quite a fun episode, too. Uh, whenever you guys kind of launched that, you guys talked about, you know, Steve and you were on there and you introduced the line one call. Um yep. You know, let's before we kind of get too much into the podcast and kind of what that was like. I, I'd I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about the line one call and what that was because I think that was a pretty special call that you guys kind of did and and produced and all the video and everything that's around it as well that people should definitely tune into. Yeah, yeah. So the line one call was actually a, a idea that we wanted to do a one off call and Steve had the idea. Um, let's go. I want to kill a turkey on the stump of a tree I cut down and built a call out of, and so we actually floated the idea for a year, like trying to find the right property. Um, man, I just don't know who or where. And we mentioned it on the podcast and had some mm -hmm. people kind of throw some ideas at us and um, nothing really penciled out. And then in the meantime, we started hunting with a, a good buddy and uh, Randy Milligan in Kansas, and he had some good property. And uh, I'm not a tree guy, but there's these fancy apps on your phone that let you like snap pictures of the bark or leaves. And it'll tell me, I'm like, oh, these are hedge trees or, you know, Boydie Arc or Osage Orange or whatever you want to call them. Maybe Osage. Yeah, I'm yeah. probably going to get, I'm probably going to get tore apart by people that pronounce them right. Um, oh, these are Osage. And I'm like, well, that's hickory. I can make strikers out of those. Or, hey, that's a big black walnut. Um, Randy. And so we got home. I didn't want to like bug him during the hunt, but we pick up the phone and call my buddy Randy. Like, would you ever be willing to, he's like, man, he's like, black walnuts don't produce an acorn you can cut it down, you know, like they're there. Like if it's, if it doesn't produce deer food, like get that thing out of here. Um, <laughs> Take a little space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's like, I just assume have, you know, oak trees. Let's, let's get this black walnut out. It'll open up. And so he went out and pre-scouted his property, went and found us uh, a pretty good black walnut and some, some good, you know, good sections of Osage or, or Boyd Arc or whatever you want to call it. Hedge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we went out there and we, me and Steve flew out to his property. Um, went and actually got some some sawyer lesson you know some we had some guys there that had the logging equipment but they kind of they cut trees down way different than us back there like it's a different you know they're they're cutting it down flush we cut all of our trees with a stump that's about two feet off the ground and we do you know we we notch the tree and we do we do it different than everything i've seen there and 
Um, but they they get an extra two feet of the best wood, you know, on the trees. So they kind of taught us their their way. Steve cut down the black walnut. I cut down the Osage. Um, we then followed the loggers to their mill um, and went and and got it all slabbed up and can it up. Which in a can is basically just in like manageable sizes to let it dry and then for us to process it into the calls. Um, we shipped it back to Washington, um, semi dried on pallets. Um, took it to a kiln because we need to get our our wood that we're going to use in turkey calls, you know, down into the single digits. We like to be, you know, six to eight percent. Um, got it dried down in a kiln and then took it to our uh, our our uh, manufacturing facility where we then took those raw blanks, ripped them down into striker sizes, and then um, got the the black walnut ready for the the router table and uh, built those calls. Um, and then we did it, you know. So there was a a lot of extra that went into that normally you just call up your lumber store like i want the black walnut and and we tried to just educate on on the you know what these trees are good for why they exist and and all the way through the mill like you know the osage is hard on blades you know it's super hard it's got like the second highest um you know thermal unit it's very dense um you know went through all of that and then documented it and then went back and uh, ultimately i was in in the shop and, and helped build all of those calls and uh you know, just something that we had our hands in, um, more, more start to finish. And then, um, yeah, you know, packaging on a level that Turkey calls haven't seen that, you know, velvety magneted boxes, all the stuff that we wanted these things to be at a different level. So, you know, cost wise, it didn't pencil out as great. You know, one of the things we did get knocked on a little bit was the price, but by the time you had everything involved, like that wood was a whole lot more expensive than, and even the box that they we put them in, like it costs us more than it costs to build a typical turkey call, you know. And so yeah. uh, that was one thing. Like, man, I wish there was a way we could have, um, you know. And and I just calculated it on its on, on our normal calculations, but that was the one thing. Like, I wish maybe it was more available to people because um, it was a special product. But um, yeah, the price. I still cringe a little bit and I shouldn't like that's saying that I, I believe we didn't price it right. Like we priced it right by business, but I, I guess I wish it was more accessible to people or we could have did it on a, on a cheaper, uh, sure. a cheaper way. But it ran like, I think it's like $300, right? But that's yep, like, yep, that's like a, if you go and you buy a handmade piece of art that is, you know, a limited edition, you, you, the people who are collecting wonderful things like that, not even to say something that is usable in the field. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a collector's item, you know, it's yeah. something that's going to be a legacy item. You can pass that down generational, um, you know, and this is not it right here, but just to kind of show folks what you're talking about when you're talking about the striker and, you know, here's it, cause it was very, you know, similar in your design, right? I mean, but obviously yeah. different materials. This is one of your other ones here. This, the Morganson or, does it Morgan, is, it is that teak and I would say teak, yeah yeah teak yep. and green slate one yep. of my favorite call yeah dude I love this I I called up last year looking for one um and that was the one that was suggested to me um you know great great staff there that can always answer questions too I've got some other calls that that I'll pull out in a minute but just kind of give people an idea when you have something like that and you have the story around it. I mean, I understand it was a higher priced item than more people. It's not like the layman's going to come through and just buy that. They're going to buy something maybe like this that, you know, is you know yep. less, but, and these are on sale right now too, as well with your, your Christmas, uh, you know, special going yep. on. But that's something that I, I thought it was, you know, very, you know, it's a very limited number. I mean, how many of those did you guys make? We, uh, 1500 and then we allowed all of our employees to buy them. So you, you take those out. Um, yeah, yeah it was limited and, and they did really well. And we just, the call sounds great too. Like it's, it can be 
set on a shelf, but I don't design anything or intend for anything to ever be set on a shelf. Like I grab my line one call, which I have sitting right here at my desk that I'm, I'm holding right now. Like it is still the call. It sounds so good. It's a call that I like, and I, all my new strikers go on this call. Like, as I'm testing, I'm like, I want to see ah. what it sounds like on this. Cause, and that's yeah. just one of those testaments, you know, we, and I don't know if it was that expensive. Like we put that brass plug on the back with me and Steve's, you know, signatures and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, some of the, you know, the cans at Uniontown, Kansas, like where the call came from. We just wanted it to be a special call. Um, and, and uh, they turned out pretty dang good. They sound um, pretty good. And it was, it was a cool project to, and to follow that yeah. start to finish. Um, and, and we, I shouldn't even say this, but like we check some of our competitor calls, like standard calls in the lineup. Like there's competitors out there with 220, $230 calls that don't have any of this backstory. Right. Um, so I'm I don't want to use it for justification, but it was, that was kind of my idea. And um, like I say, I think, you get this thing, and and if you if you want to hunt with it, it's gonna hunt awesome. And if you want to keep it on your shelf, then I'll be it. Um, but yeah, it, it's a good call, and it was a fun project. And and Steve went with Lion One, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the reason why. If we went back to episode one of Cutting the Distance, I would know more about the story. But there's a line of beef where they ch- every year or every like when they change up the bull. I, I don't know, but it's basically like line one beef and then like line two beef and line three beef. It, it continues on. So if we ever do this again with a different wood or a different striker, or different combinations of material, we can call it the line two tricky call. And, and um, I, I don't want to make it too much, but like if you, you know, some guys might end up collecting them all or, or getting them all. And so that was kind of our idea maybe in the future, but we got to find a different wood source, different project. And then, um, you know, see what we can, I even wanted to go like the call you were just showing has green slate. Well, it's only available in like one mine in the country. Um, you can only get that in one place. And so it's like, I even want to go to like the mine and go see, cause it, that, that green slate is very baby. Like it's got to be wrapped in a wet burlap sack all the way until it's manufactured. It's got to be like manufactured very green before it starts to dry. And like, I don't even want to follow that process. Cause I think you're know, just being a guy that loves the outdoors, like being attached to where this call comes from and what it takes is like, it's just a cool part to know, you know, what, what all is going into it. Absolutely. You know, the history, the history of that and being able to kind of see how things are manufactured, I think it's fascinating. And for people who use some type of tool like this in the woods, it's like to know where it came from and see the history and see you guys and your passion and kind of, you know, A to Z, nuts to soup. It's like, it's man, it's really cool to see that process. So I, I was very fascinated yeah. with that. And, you know, just kind of, so in the very first you know, I, I think if folks want to hear more about it, definitely tune in. It's episode one of the cutting distance with you guys um, and you and Steve there. But, you know, whenever you were approached with that idea, had you ever seen yourself as wanting to do a podcast? Was this something that like you, I mean, cause obviously you'd done a lot of interviews, you know, I, I know kind of, you said like 2016 Western hunting expo, you guys kind of, it, things just took off to another level. Um, and you kind of, I'm sure have been in part of so many hundreds, I don't even know, thousands at this point in time interviews, Yeah. but did, being on that other flip side of that table, what was that like for you? And is that something that, you know, Steve approached you with the idea and then you decided, okay, or was there some hesitancy? What was that like for you to get in that driver's seat? Yeah. So I had been on a lot of podcasts leading up. It mm-hmm. seems like at times I was on one a week, one every other week there for a while when podcasting really kind of blew up. 16 17 18 whenever that happened and i was a little concerned of like i'm maybe a good guest maybe as long as people are feeding it and keeping it moving but i was a little nervous like can i can i host this thing and um 
it, Steve had recommended it when I, I, when, and it was big shoes to fill, right? Remy and whatever the contract mm-hmm. was or whatever he wanted to do. Um, he was leaving and they wanted to keep that there because it was a meat eater on podcast and Steve recommended. And I'm like, well, Remy's was very technical. Um, and that's going to be what I'm, I'm, I'm not the most entertaining. I'm not the most, you know, comedic. I'm not those things, but if I can keep it technical and tactical, which was kind of what I had been doing with my education and the reason I had been on the other podcast, I was going to be okay with it. So I said, as long as we are okay with very, maybe and I don't want to use the word drive, but just like very straightforward, I'm going to bring guys that are experts in their field, but really they are good hunters. They've got good tactics. And if I can make, um, you know, the podcast around that, would that be okay? And they were completely fine with it. Like, let's have a very technical, tactical podcast. Um, and, and I was able to carry that on. And one thing for me that helps out, which I hate sometimes is like building treatments. Um, I don't script the whole entire conversation, but I've got a very clear path of how I'm going to get from, you know, the first minute to the 50th minute um, on, on a pretty clear direction, which helps me steer and navigate. And sometimes you go a little bit off, but um, very clear and concise um, tech, you know, it, whoever my guest is, I know what I'm going to ask them, what they excel at, what they're good at, maybe what they do different. And I've kind of already got everything lined up and it's, it's been awesome. Um, at first it w- there was a little frustration. You know, a lot of people were Remy fans and it's like, Oh, Jason, you know, I would uh, not as good or, and, and it's like, it's fine. But just recently we're about a year and a half into it now. Um, and, and I finally seen it turn the corner. I feel like it's, it's a lot of emails coming in. Like at first we wrote you off and, and, you know, stuck with you and it's been awesome. So, and that's once again, more so than maybe when we were selling calls to people, I get more just like, Hey man, the, the information's great. Like love that episode. That was something I never would have thought to do or, and then the nice thing is, and I'm completely transparent, like being a, a, an adult onset whitetail hunter, I've did all the Western stuff. Like I get to go at whitetail, like with a very naive intro. And I get to ask a lot of those questions and it's, you know, I do a lot of research and, and it's still hunting. So I get a lot of it, mm-hmm. but it, it's cool to go at a different topic is kind of the new guy. I and not know and so I go to a lot of biologists, a lot of good whitetail hunters, and just ask my personal questions that I might not know the answers to, or to see if it it matches up with like Chris Parrish and Randy Milligan, the guys that I have been whitetail hunting. Like, does this jive with what they've been telling me? You know, and it's not to question them; it's just to see if people have differing opinions. And sure. um, so it's it's been awesome to like use the podcast as like a route to some very knowledgeable whitetail guys that I have no business interviewing. I feel like, but. <laughs> Well, it, I, I kind of understand that same way where, you know, I've, I've had different, you know, wild game chefs, you know, Jesse Griffiths, um, you know, is one that I, I interviewed and going to interview again soon. And I'm asking him certain questions as far as like, hey, this is in my freezer. What would you do with it? Or, you know, the Daniel Pruitt's of the world or different people that we're sitting down with and, and interviewing and getting some of the best of the best to get their perspective. And sometimes it's self-serving to just my, my buddy and I trying to figure out what it is we want to try next. But really, it's also it, kind of having that one-on-one question. Hey, what is the most typical thing that, you know, people are doing wrong? And I mean, I guess that's a, a good transition to ask, too. It's like, what are some of the things when people are buying your calls that you've seen maybe some mistakes that people make, you know, maybe it's not drying out, uh, you know, their mouth calls or different things that, or is there some kind of one-on-one things that you might give to people or say, Hey, you guys got to make sure you're doing this with your call for it to last longer, you know, maybe chalk on the box call, different things that maybe 
some people might not recognize as a necessity right off the bat. Yeah, that's the number one um, issue that we get. And, and it's actually pretty low, but uh, storage of your diaphragms. The latex gets wet. Um, some moisture can get between um, the tape and the latex or the frame. Um, you've got to let those dry out, especially before they go back into a sealed container. I don't mind them. Or it's not an issue if they go back to a container after they've sat on your counter for a day. Now, when you sit them on your counter, make sure they're not in front of a window because heat and direct like UV light is what breaks that latex down. So these calls, especially turkey calls, will last a long, long time if they're kept um, clean, dry, and in a cool, dark place. You know, so um, uh, the refrigerator, um, freezer is even better. Like if you got some space through them in there. If not, a drawer is fine, just a dark drawer. Um, inside your car is very, very tough, especially in the months because you've got extreme heat if it's on a dash or in a cup holder or something where the sun can hit um, it's going to break that call down very very quickly but back to the the moisture you will get some nasty molds and mildews if you do not allow that call to breathe um, and dry out so number one issue we've got like hey your call milded or moldew or or molded or got mildew on it or uh, hey my latex is really wavy like your call um, like lax and let go. And I can, you never insult a customer. Right? I learned that early on, but I'm like, can you just send me a picture of it? Yeah. And I'm like, that call was stored wet. Like let it sit and dry and it'll probably tighten itself back up. So that latex. And so drying it, cleaning it. Um, some people ask about cleaning it with like mouthwash. I, I don't like those. Water is fine. Um, mm -hmm. Like just run some water, especially on a turkey call, run it through the different layers. Um, some people use toothpicks. Once again, I would caution anybody that puts toothpicks between the layers, like do not puncture the latex um, in certain spots. It really does matter. Certain spots, you might puncture it and get away with it, but make sure you're not right. going to stab that. Um, let them dry out, um, put them away. And, and turkey calls, elk calls aren't as durable because we're only using a single piece of latex. Um, you know, those ones will wear a little bit more. So that's even more important. Like make sure they stay out of the sun, make sure they stay out of the um, aside from that, the majority of issues we have on open read or people that just aren't protecting the call will crease. Some people will crease a read, um, you know, and they need a replacement mylar, which is very, very cheap. We can do it. But one of the tips or tricks, a lot of times people get it fixed. If you use like a clothes iron on, on that mylar, mm -hmm. you can usually flatten it back out. So you can literally just iron it on a low heat and it'll, it'll get that crease back out and flatten and come, it'll like lose its memory to that crease. Um, if not, we can replace it. Like it's a 15 cent, 20 cent piece of mylar. Um, and then just people tinkering, um, as much as I hate it, like I love people to tinker with their call and think they got some ownership, but like the tinkers are usually who we get, like, there's no way you could do that without pulling the guts out of the call or the wedge and like messing with it. Right. There, there's no way that could have happened because it's a protected read. And so you we're, used we're a fine hole punch that. there. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or, and then some of our stuff I designed so that it's very, very tight, like on a deer call, for instance, like the reed assembly is very tight and I just want you to move the rubber band around to get your bleats or your butt grunts. Um, some of these guys like that, you might have trouble pulling out just with your, they'll put a wrench on it or they'll put a vice grip on it and it tears a tone board up, you know? So it's like, we've, we just, we fight that a little bit, um, you know, on, on people want to like yank that assembly out when it's, I don't know if that one's tight or not, but um, yeah that it, tinkers and then other than that like a lot of our stuff really can't be you know be it, it's meant to to last forever last a lifetime a generational call um you know a few things where uh, you know our, our diaphragms unfortunately are, are consumable that we can't yeah. build one that lasts forever 
Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the three biggest things, you know, drying out your calls, storage away from sunlight and then the tinkers. But like I say, I don't, I don't, I was a tinker too. That's I, I mess with every call I've had before I ever, you know, got it right. So I don't, I don't blame them either. Yeah. Well, those are, those are very important aspects there too. You know, I've, I've definitely seen very early on whenever I, I cause I'm, I'm not a huge mouth caller, but I, I went ahead and got, uh, you know, I think it was the very first one you guys did. It's like got the Giannis and Steve. I forgot there was one more, the Jake break and let's yeah. loud and clear. And there was like a three part set and just to try it out and kind of, I've always been a box caller before, but then I, I realized a few different things. One is having a few different calls in your arsenal. Uh, a couple of Turkey hunters I've talked to that they were saying, it's like, yeah, you know, I bring this one and this one and this one too, kind of having different sounds out there and trying to see what works because this one, is the one that brought them all in last year. I mean, it was better than anything else. I might, you know, get a shot gobble whenever I was using the box call way at a distance, you know, just kind of to see what was around there. Um, You know, other folks, you know, if you don't know too, there's owl calls. You guys have a really nice one out there too that, that um, uh, what's that one called? It starts the H maybe the Harrison pro. So we we teamed up with, yeah, we teamed up Oh, the Harrison Hooter or the Harrison Harrison pro. We teamed up with James Harrison on that one. And yeah, there's, there's, he's more owl than most of the owls out there in the woods. So that guy was a a great, a great uh, matchup there um, on that. But yeah, you know, Turkey Collins funny because I love locating with the box Mm -hmm. and I usually like to switch to a pot, like minimal, minimalize the movement, right? Like if I can do it with the pot, I'd prefer to do it with a diaphragm. But like last year we keep all these calls on us. Uh, here in Washington, our Merriams, I had to, we finished over half the birds with the box. So I'm sitting there like as quietly and motionless. It's just what they wanted, right? You would yeah. test them with the other calls and they weren't as interested. You go back to the box, they're hammering. And so, yeah, that's, I love diaphragms. I think it's the most, uh, the most uh, useful call, hands-free, everything that you need, mo- as motionless as you can Stealth. be. Yeah. But, um, there are times where the pot is what works or a pot with a different, like we've even went to a, the extent of, well, this pot with this striker is not working, but this pot with that striker is working, you know, like just the tone difference. Um, and then, you know, having a box or, you know, all these different things is it, just having them in your toolbox is great. But yeah, that's why we, we've got such a wide range of calls. Yeah. Well, and, and kind of, with your all the calls that you've made, and and I want to talk about what you got going on in the future too, but I kind of wanted to get back to, you know, kind of nerding out a little bit of the idea of like when you're creating these, are what are you what kind of setup do you have to where you're testing the frequencies and you're doing different things to kind of get the science aspect of it too? I mean, sometimes you might hit a call and you're like, oh man, that sounds really good, that sounds natural. But as far as like, are you in a sound booth with any of these recording things and kind of taking down these metrics to figure out, hey, this one produces this volume, it this hits this frequency a little bit more? Just kind of curious as far as like the kind of audiologist side of things like that like what are what are you looking that is it do you have a space for that is that something that you just send out what does that look like so we we do a few things we we do it on some of our design programs um we can we can like on the aluminum bugle tubes the best example that was the one where we were you know it was a patented idea um we went and got the patent and so we had to have things pretty dialed in um so we used both um solid works uh, a vibration um, module within SolidWorks, not very cheap to like this aluminum tube at this wall thickness will resonate at this frequency. So on paper, it should do this out in the the real world. We use some um, audio analyzers just 
outside. We'll do it inside of a room. We'll do it outside. We'll do it from a hundred yards away. Make sure that they're fairly consistent. And so we will say like, all right, the aluminum tube hits a frequency that is this compared to our plastic tube hits a frequency that's this. Um, and that, and so we do do that as well. Um, I like to go there. There's two ways. Then we also just do comparisons, the real animals. And sometimes that comes from YouTube. Sometimes that comes from, um, and you always have to be a little bit, you have to recognize that sometimes, you know, the audio speakers in my computer aren't as good as real life or my iPhone can't capture stuff as good, but we do a lot of testing on that side, like working on a pileated woodpecker call right now. Um, and, and something like a woodpecker, when I'm just using it for shot gobbles, it's not as important that I hit like a certain frequency. I'm going more for volume within like a frequency range. Like, all right, as long as it sounds like a woodpecker, I don't care if it's louder. I don't care if it's exactly right. Like I just want this tricky to gobble. Right. And so yeah. it just depends on what, what project you're undertaking, where when we went with the owl, we wanted that thing to be identical. So we listen, you know, James knows owls very well. You know, he's won umpteen championships on owl calling like the guy knows owls but then we still wanted to compare it to a lot of real um you know sounds and then on the pro it's the first adjustable owl hooter so why when it's cranked down and it's constricted it's very very owly right like a very good sound but for hunting we want this thing to be as loud as possible so we're willing to give up a little bit of back pressure and a little bit of sound quality to crank out and get a gobble and so we're always checking these things, but then we're also giving ourselves a little bit of lead way where it doesn't have to sound perfect all the time. Um, you know, deer, a lot of times we'll go to, to our experts, you know, whether it's Mark or Tony Peterson or Clay, like you guys are right. in the woods a lot. Like, yeah, these are what this call sounds like, or this was what this mass produced call sounds like. But hey, everything I've watched or heard in the woods, like the doe bleats are a little different than you know, some of those cans, you can not saying that they're, they don't work. Obviously the, the Primo's can is, is killed probably more deer than my calls have yet, or maybe ever will. But when every like mature doe I hear bleat doesn't sound like that here, it's shorter. And so, you know, I was in Mexico with clay and Steve coos deer hunting and mm -hmm. I, we had some white tail calls cause Steve was dead set on calling in a, a coos deer. And yeah, we're, yeah. we're just talking about like what clay wants. He's like, well, if we could, he's like, I want it to be real soft and subtle. And so we're sitting there tinkering on a call and I'm like, I know exactly what you want clay. Like I'll go home, cut a different read. I'll have this dialed for you. And then that's where like the acorn came from. Um, so it's a little bit of a balance, but yeah, as far as like sound analyzing, we do use a lot, but we're not using professional equipment all the time we're using apps on our phone apps on our computers or we'll record a sound and then send it to like a third party like where did this hit how accurate is it and so i wouldn't claim that i'm an audio engineer we're just paying attention to like what what we have and then the other thing that we try to do is usually we're testing calls a year or two ahead of time and is is rudimentary or like old school as it is like did this call work in the woods it's it's real simple like I don't care what it hits. Like it couldn't yeah. even sound like it, but maybe there's a reason why if you didn't sound exactly like an owl, you'll get more responses. Or if it is louder than a real woodpecker sounds like you're going to get more sound, or, you know, more responses or, Hey, this pot calls really, really high pitched and shrill, but gosh, dang turkeys were attracted to it. Cause it was different, you know? And so, so there's like the accuracy side that I'm very concerned about, but then there's like the result side that we, that's why we like to get out and test everything a year ahead of time. And if I need to change soundboards or, or change the uh, pot dimension, like we can make that change. But if not, we can leave something there. And um, that's what I love. I love proofing things on the ground because not saying that 
we need to sound exactly like a crow or we need to sound exactly like a bugling bull, maybe a higher pitch shrill bugle will actually get more responses. Um, that's why I love when that metal tube came out. I felt like the ring and the pitch like in my ears was different to me. And in my opinion, I feel like the elk respond to it a little bit better. Um, so at times it's like, well, I, I think that was a good design because yeah, it may be more high pitch and shrill, but we're getting better responses. So that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of the full circle of a design. We do try to to be as accurate as we can here, but there are times that we're going to go 20% off of the norm to see if it hunts better than, than just accuracy. No, that's, I mean, the proof is in, in the results, right? And that's, it's great to, that you have a group and a team to kind of bounce things off of yourself in the woods and being able to see what works where the best. Um, you know, I, I think I saw something about, you were talking about doing a, a moose call uh, and there's some yep. other ones. You got the woodpecker, like what are some things that are coming out, you know, as we're on here on the brink of 2024, 20, what are some things that, you know, maybe if you can, you know, talk about some of the things yep. that are in the works or some of the ideas you may have or things you want to test out. Yeah. So the moose tube, um, we, we were hand forming all of those and we realized that from a production standpoint, it might not be good because you can build one a day. Like we were literally hand laying the one that Steve and Clay used in Alaska, mm-hmm. a fiberglass. I've got a big, heavy, like an 80 pound aluminum mold to build these things. It's just a pain in the neck. So we're looking at a um, glass infused plastic, which is a little more expensive than normal plastic. Um, so we're, we're looking at ways that we can actually produce these, have good products. Um, I love the idea of a hand handmade product, but the things fiberglass isn't quite as durable for like raking a tree if you wanted to use your moose tube. Mm-hmm. So we've got a moose tube coming. Um, we're working on a woodpecker call that has a, a little bit of, I can't talk about the other side of it because it's going to be the first. So this call will double as a woodpecker or a something. Yeah, something. Um, we're, working on, we're working on getting that out this year um, for a new locator. We've got some new elk calls coming out. We teamed up with the three past, well, I guess, three past world champions. And then the other guy works with us um, on the elk call side. So we, we went to these guys and like, Hey, this is, this is an opportunity to design the exact call that you want to use. So we just try to be a little different and like create these projects that um, like, yeah, maybe the normal elk hunter won't like them. Maybe they will, but these are the three calls that these three world champions all like to use um, and then put them in a three pack together. Uh, We've got something real similar. And I think we've real similar to the acorn coming, but in a, a solid acrylic version. Um, so I, I love the technology of putting the acorn. Um, I love the inhale exhale. If it's cold, you can inhale both sides. You can go back and forth. Um, it, 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 it really kind of turned out and we kept it in a small form factor. My concern was to get those two calls to bypass each other. That middle tenon was going to have to get real big. And we were able to like be very, very streamlined and keep that down to a manageable deer call. And, uh, you know, a lot of our deer calls like the beta and alpha have these big long rubber hoses which does add to the accuracy of the sound but what we back to what we've talked about that acorn or the alpha hunts really really well for a small hard-bodied call um so yeah it might not have that deep guttural tone of some of those grunts you know but it's 95 percent of the way there and it hunts just fine and it gives you the added ability if you're you know hunting pre-rut or during the rut you can have two different grunts set up if it's early season, you want to have a bleat and a medium-sized butt grunt, you can do that. And so I love the the ability to, without having to pull your call apart, being able to have two different sounds. And when it's cold, you'll be able to inhale either way as well. And, and the inhale and exhale are different. So you just it just opens up all of these great options within one one call. No, I I, I love that one, man. I've, I've been taking that in, out in the field this year. 
Uh, I got it when you guys first released it, used it out in Central Texas, and then recently in South Texas. Um, you know, definitely stopped quite a few buck when we're just hitting that grunt and they're walking through and, you know, yeah. kind of coming in to investigate. Um, did Clay know that you were going to have it be his signature, you know, one when y'all put that out? He seemed surprised on, on one of the videos I saw. Yeah, we, he, I think he was surprised on how well it turned out. We had been yeah. talking, we, I wanted to do the two way call and he wanted to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, as things started going down the path, like, you know, he wanted to pick a white oak, which from a woodworking perspective, I'm like, oh no, Clay, like, does it, can we find something that looks like white oak? Because <laughs> white oak is such a pain to finish. Um, it's very porous. So, I mean, on the call, it's very, very tough to get finished. Um, and so like clay wanted it to be the white oak call and and we came up with the graphics we worked with our graphic guy clay was stoked and then i'm like you know clay's not a big timer i'm like clay you mind if i add your signature he's like i guess jason you know so he's like he he was he, he's, he's trying to be humble but i think the yeah. call turned out like appearance wise very very good yeah um, it's beautiful it, it's it's an awesome call it did give us a little fits we've had a little issue with some o-rings like the call shrinking or and i think it might have been some some it's been a pretty low number yep. um but but that's that comes back to and maybe it's on me we didn't hunt that call the year before we just produced it knowing that it had everything that we needed it was o-ring fit we thought we we're going to be good we built a lot of duck calls out of wood and it gave us a little you know it's it's still under one percent of the ones we sold but we've had a little bit of issues um but yeah i think the 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 acrylic version of that We've got a deer call coming out that has a snort wheeze incorporated. So just trying to like iron out and finish out that that deer call line, which has been a, a great line for us. Um, you know, we use that meat eater white tail team to really kind of help promote it for us. We don't have a, a huge following in the Midwest and the South. So um, yeah, I, I love like I think it's because white tail is new to me. I'm addicted. And so like I'm very passionate, like right now in that white tail deer call lane. You know, we do a lot of black tail calling out here as well, but it's it's definitely you don't have near the people that are hunting black tails, you do white tails. So we're really trying to like focus in on on what white tails and then we looked at everything else out there. This is one of those ones I talked earlier. Like, can we demand that price range? But we're literally building a full acrylic call. That has twice as much acrylic as it in it as a duck call, yet we're still selling it for eighty bucks, you know, on, on like the beta. And so that's some of the like the hard debates I have. Like I know that we're building and all the other call companies might hate me for this. Like you're selling a duck call for 150 bucks, it has a half of that acrylic in it in the same processes, right? And so that's where like I don't sit I don't have to sit and justify our pricing, but like, dang, I know we're not making near as much on this deer call, but I want it to be a generational call. That beta call is 100% acrylic. The tone board's machined into the exhaust, like just high quality that in a way that others aren't, you know, aside from the custom call builders right now, nobody's building calls to that level. And I I just want to, I want to build it to that level. Like if it's got my name on it, I want to build it to a certain level. Um, And that's, that's what I've been most excited about. Like, Hey, I know why people haven't did it. It's too expensive, but that's no reason why we shouldn't do it. Um, and, and I think people, it, it's funny you go through and I shouldn't read the reviews, but you go through and read the reviews of the beta, which is all five star and very, very um, skeptical people when they first bought it. And then it kind of turns a page. Like I see why this call is, is this price. So I'm like, all right, whew. you know, I dodged that bullet of another high price call uh, because people get it and they, Oh shoot. It's got a, it's got an integrated tone board into the exhaust and it had to go from the lathe to the mill and then polished. And you know, you got to put a cork wedge in it. Like the old school duck calls, like mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah. So we're just, we're trying to do everything to just to, at a level that, Hey, if I could build this call for me and this is a call I'd like to use, like let's offer that as a production option. And um, yeah, what else is coming next? We got, it's a fairly light year on releases. It's, it's uh, more of a, a, a balance everything out. And, and then we got some pretty cool stuff coming for 25, 26. So um, see, that's where I've got stuff kind of penciled in all the way for the next couple of years. And it's just like making sure I can get through all those ideas and, and get them proofed. Cause it's easy to say, this is what I'm going to do. And then it's a different thing to like make that call function um, how you, how you hope it does. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I talked to Paul, Paul Lewis, FHF gear. When, and when I had him on, we were talking about like the idea is like, sometimes there, that is that production queue is two years out. You've designed something and sometimes you're like, I want to put this out now, but it's like, there's a process and everything and you're going to get it out there tested. You got to get the video, the different things that come apart with having, you know, being a part of, of the a larger group here and, and that marketing arm and all the different things that go in to that. And also just the production side of things, finding maybe even the, the machining, the tooling, the things you got to do to be able to produce this and a repeatable precision based format, something that someone's going to be able to pull out and know that this one over here is going to be the same as this one over here. And I know you've talked about how you've gone and taken some things off the line and tested it to make sure that you're getting something that, and there's been times you've, you know, even mentioned too, a, Hey, early on we had something and maybe the latex wasn't the the right, you know, thickness or whatever. And you're like, this is 95% of the way there, but maybe that ends up going to maybe an organization, a kid's thing where they can learn to call from it or something like that, where it's not out yep. on the same market when, when that's few and far between as you kind of go forward. But those are things that come up and you have to test and you have to check it out. And you might have an idea now that might be, end up being two years down the line when it's produced, you know, because of those types yep. of form and formats of time. So it's, um, an, you know, kind of, I know you've kind of started out with doing, you know, elk and then kind of turkey and some things that you, you know, maybe hunted more often and kind of moving into the whitetail world. Um, as far as like, you know, some duck calls and stuff, do you see something, it, you know, more of a, an advancement of something that you want to do in that world without giving maybe anything away that may be coming down? Is that, I mean, there's so many different avenues of calls. Is it like, do you want, is there that, that idea of like, you know, kind of vertical versus, you know, horizontal scaling? Is there something that you see yourself like one day I want to be able to do this? Or do you maybe have some ideas that without giving away? You know, yeah. Yeah. Package? No, we, I can talk about that. So we, we wanted to really, um, we wanted to maintain the brand and, and my passions where I'm not, I, I love waterfowl hunting. I love shooting them, but I'm not mm -hmm. the greatest waterfowl caller. And so we've kind of elected at least in the immediate future to kind of, have a very limited waterfowl line something that works but not go crazy on it not a full line so that's kind of where we're at on the waterfowl side um i feel like i need to hunt them for five to ten years and become a very proficient caller like i feel like i am on the on the elk and turkey and deer deer calling is easy compared to elk and turkey there's not as much user skill but um i want to become a very good waterfowl caller and know the ins and outs before we really dive deep in so i feel like we've got a good hunting call um but, but we're going to kind of leave it at that yeah, right on, yeah. Man. not not a, not a huge deep dive into that um, until we've either got the right players or until we've we've got the passion and the know how to to do it the you know kind of the way we've did the other lines. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've teamed up. You know, I mean, when when you have people who've won so many national competitions and they're known for that, and they're the ones that you're collaborating with and working with, you know, the end results are going to be great. And obviously, you have the, the skill set and you know the team to be able to put that together. What does your team look like nowadays? How many folks are are there working on a day to day at Phelps? So, uh, 
we got Dirk who kind of runs our marketing mm-hmm. um, side. And then I've got my wife and, and Corey kind of run the business and the operation side internally. And then I think we've got seven call builders in the, I have to count real quick. Yeah. But yeah. I think seven call builders show up every day, um, assembling calls, um, packaging calls. Uh, and that's, that's really, they don't get enough credit because they, they are an awesome group. You know, I, I designed these things the first time, kind of give them a one hour court crash course on how to assemble them, what matters, what you're checking for. And they, uh, they'll come to me like, Hey, this lot of tone boards isn't right because of this. And so we can't just slap things together because you could have 10,000 of something's on the market that isn't right. And so our crew is, is awesome from, you know, the people putting the O-rings on to the people, you know, polishing barrels, whatever they may be doing. Um, like our, our crew's awesome. And, uh, yeah, so I think we've got about 11 in-house employees counting myself. And then we've got a few, um, my, my good buddy, Charlie Smith and his company and, and his employees actually build the majority of our diaphragms. Um, we use a, a third party builder for some of our Turkey calls, um, with, with strict oversight by myself and, and some of our diaphragm builders. And, um, you know, Chris Parrish, a great, mm-hmm one of the greatest turkey callers of all time. Like he has some oversight and QA, QC responsibilities on our turkey calls. Um, so it's just teaming up with the right guys. Right. And, and uh, you know, making sure that everything, you know, elk calls when they still roll through my shop, even though my buddy Charlie's building them and he's responsible for his own QA, QC is a, he's a great elk caller. Um, I still check. So we're like double checking everything. Like I don't want a batch to come through with bad latex or maybe a bad frame. Yeah. I trust you can build this call over and over and over, but I want, to make sure that we don't have any slip ups. Um, you know, I think in the, the 12 years of building diaphragms, I've had like one lot of a certain diaphragm get out that squeaked through. But other than that, like, I think we've had a almost, almost flawless record of people saying like, man, the call I bought from you back in 2016, when you released this amp is the same exact call I get right now. And that's really what I love. Um, there's no guesswork. There's no quality inconsistencies. It's all just very dialed process. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it, it, precision is a word that comes to mind when I think about your your products and, um, you know, and that repeatability of knowing you're going to be able to get something shipped to you or on the store rack or whatever it is, and you can pick it up and this is going to be a, a high quality item. So that that's something that I uh, tip my hat to you on that. Um, before we kind of sign off, I had a, a, a kind of a question too, you know, we just wrapped up, you know, hunting season for the most part. I know there's, you know, turkey coming up here too in the spring, but um, I was kind of curious, what are some big hunts that you went on? What do you have in your freezer? And what is your favorite? I know you said you'd cook a lot of wild game. So like, what is kind of one of your go-to? If someone sits down at a dinner at the Phelps house and what are you preparing? What are some of the things that are your favorites? Oh man, I know I'm going to get this wrong. Um, so 23 <laughs> was, was awesome. I've got, I went on the coos deer hunt early. Mm-hmm. The coos deer eat amazing. Like maybe one of the best eating critters. Um, I, Ended up with a archery elk out of Oregon, uh, a Washington muzzleloader bull, and then a Montana mule deer, and then a Kansas whitetail. So I've got, I've got a pretty good selection. Um, they all eat great. You know, everybody's like, oh, the Montana mule deer in the rut. But man, I tell you, what, I haven't got a bad one yet, and it, it's good. Uh, I'm gonna probably really disappoint you with this answer because we're we're very. I grew up eating this way. Like we don't do a lot of roasts on deer elk. It, it mm-hmm. just it tur- everything gets turned into steak, like cleaned up. Yeah. Um, and so, man, our go-to is just like pan fried. Um, I'm trying to eat healthier, like no flour. So it's like just straight up salt, pepper, a little bit of garlic powder, like pan fried 
elk steak, uh, maybe a little bit of sweet potatoes on the side. Um, I eat very, very boring cause I'm a, I'm a big guy. And so I'm trying to, trying to stay in this like two thirty range and not go back the other way. So it's like pan fried, no breading elk steak, deer steak. Um, we eat a lot of burger, um, mm-hmm. whether we turn it into like, you know, taco, spaghetti meat, whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, I, we try uh, my other favorite way is if we, if we keep it or like this time this year from my Oregon bowl, I kept all my back straps, my tenderloins and some of the roasts intact. Like I, I absolutely love like marinating, um, in like, a and people are going to laugh at it, but it's just kind of our old standard brine, like a little bit of Coca-Cola, some tender yeah. quick and some black pepper and, and garlic powder. And then just putting it on the, the green mountain grill or the Traeger or the smoker and uh, letting it go to medium rare and like, my kids don't believe me that it's it's not beef and you know wild game and that's that's my favorite way it's just a little more time intensive um you know it's more of a weekend meal but during the week when we're running and going everywhere to i mean my kids got sports every night of the week and every weekend it's usually like as fast as i can like cook some steaks or get some burger thrown into the into the pan like we're we're in and out real quick yeah no i hear you and just being with the kids i know you you've coached some sports too with your kiddos are you still able to find that time to do that? Or are they oh, moving yeah. up in that level? I'm two days in to uh, coaching junior high now. I was I said I because I've coached every sport my kids have ever played, yeah. whether it's baseball, basketball, football, um, wrestling. I can't do. My boy wrestles now, which I love. I love the sport, and I love that I don't know anything about it because I don't have to coach it that way. But um, yeah, basketball, baseball, football. Like I've coached everything they've ever did, um, and it. it I don't like saying this, but it forces me to like spend that extra time. Like I'm very involved with my kids all the time, yeah. but it, it makes sure that that times with them. Yeah. I'm, I'm the coach and my kids are old enough now where I'm not the nice coach anymore. I'm not, right. I'm not a jerk, but I'm no longer yeah. like, Oh, you know, I want you to pay attention. I want you to get after it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm all coach, uh, our junior high basketball team, my boys in eighth graders. So I'll be done this year. I don't know if, if the opportunity will be there to like jump over and help my daughter, like through her last little bit of junior high, but I'm hoping with my, my crazy work schedule and my inability to high school, a lot longer season. I feel like I have to be at every practice, uh, of course, every game, like it may just interrupt hunting schedule about middle mm-hmm. of November. Um, so I hope I don't have to do high school, but if, if I need to, or if, if nobody's there, we'll see, but yeah, very grow up with a very competitive family. Um, dads and uncles were all very involved. They coached us all the way through. Um, and yeah, so it's, you know, right now it's, basketball and baseball my boy doesn't play football anymore which thank god because it's in the fall and i don't know anything about volleyball but baseball and uh basketball i i usually jump in and coach everything they do yeah fall seasons can be tough for hunters when their kids get involved and vice versa i was in competitive soccer playing around the country all over and you know fall was the time and then i realized like after i'd kind of gotten to college and finally hung up the 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 soccer cleats as far as competitive play I was like, man, there's a lot more time for for hunting now, you know. Yep, <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's a blast. I love it, and and I remember I wanted to hunt and not play football when mm-hmm. I was younger in high school. And my dad, like, hey, you can hunt the rest of your life, and so I kind of use that same thing. On you know, like, yeah, I can hunt the rest of my life. I need to get you know spend as much time with my kids and sure and uh, you know get get them through sports. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, I do miss some volleyball games and I miss some wrestling matches due to hunting. But um, I'm there if I'm home and can make it work. I'm I'm here as much as possible. And uh, sure. yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun. I, I love um, you know the the I love being around all the kids. Um, we I've kind of got that 
that perfect relationship with all my players. Like we can goof around and we can give each other crap, but yet they know when like too far is too far. And so it's like, I've, I've built this and, and I'm, I'm excited to see what this group of boys, you know, somewhere down the road does. Cause it's just, it's been fun, like all the way from kindergarten to here. And it's just something I love to do. And, um, it, when you have got that competitive spirit, like I've got it in business, I've got it in everything I do. It's nice to, even though you can't compete anymore, you're like, you got it from a coach's perspective. So I love to just go out and get the best out of kids and compete. And, um, I probably have too much fun competing, but, uh, it, it's, it's all good. No, man, that's, it's great. It's great. It helps make the kids, you know, it, it helps shape them in such a way and having someone who's positive and who's been there and, you know, encouraging them and being someone who they can look up to in, in another setting too, in your professional Avenue as well. And kind of turning into that, you know, I was kind of going to ask you as well, what is it that you want your legacy to be and i i know you're not an old man sitting on the porch and in your last few rocks on a rocket chair but so i know it's kind of a, a weird kind of question is it in some ways but you know i think you've kind of made some substantial marks and and you know with your game calls with you know obviously with some of the kids and things too and your community and things like that as well so you know maybe in a personal and a professional setting what is some of the things that you kind of view and when you're thinking about your legacy yeah, I had a lot of time to think about this when we sold the company. Like I've had this this conversation many times and from a from a career or a game call perspective, um I want to be known as as a company, a very high quality game call company um that that I could almost go to our Phelps game calls mission statement cuz that was the legacy I wanted to leave was like a a a call company by hunters that cut no corners basically. Like always high end, um, which then ties into like the content, which I think is really how people know me or get to see me or from, um, I want to be known as, and this is weird, but it's important to me. Like a guy that never screwed over anybody in business, a guy that's always been very honest in business, very transparent. And then once you get through like that, uh, like I want to be an educator, like somebody that somebody's gained a piece of knowledge from, or that, you know, 20 or 30 years down the road, like, man, I remember when, you know, Jason was doing, you know, this education or he brought on this project or, Hey, he went over, like Jason's a guy that will go and speak at the fish and wildlife commission and made a difference aside from just collecting money. Uh, he was the guy that went over with the biologist and captured calves for two or three days. Yeah. I, I get the, 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 the uh, flexibility in my schedule to maybe do that sometimes where maybe other people don't, but I want to be more than just a guy that made money off of a hunting industry or a group of hunters. I want to, I want to help with conservation. I want to help with studies. I want to help make people better hunters. I want to make, um, you know, I want to be the guy where, and, and I'll never take credit. I, I, I don't hate it. I just, I always turn it back. Like, Hey, without Phelps game calls, like I would never would have done this or without your help, I never would have killed this bull. I'm like, no, I just gave you the little piece you needed. Everything else you had to do. I wasn't there with you. I wasn't um, like, I want, yeah, I want all of those things. I want to be positive. I want to leave a good mark on hunting and uh, I want to make hunting better than the, like leave it off better than where I, I got it. Now we got a lot of stuff working against us. I'm not going to lie. That's going to be very tough to, to be able to say that, but um, I also battle a lot of what we do and maybe some of the, the impact and stuff we put on public land. Like I, 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 I'm not, I would be lying to say that it doesn't, I have some internal battles. Like, should I even have a, a videoed hunt in this area because of the pressure it already receives or, you know, it's like I struggle with that. And so I'm trying to balance all of this from a 
um, a business side versus like what's right for the animals or what's right for the area or the people that have hunted that before. And so just trying to be very, uh, very, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what word encompasses that all just very respectful to hunting and, and what it means versus I hate to use the word, but you have to use it like the commercialization of what some of what we've did um, and, and strike a good balance. And so uh, I like to respect that. I like to always think about that. Um, and that's really kind of where I want to be. Yeah. I, you know, people throw the word influence around. I hate it, but I would love to be able to help people educate, become better hunters, maybe, you know, find different ways to do stuff. Um, and, and from a career side, from a personal side, like, man, I, I would love for people to say like family man, like very good to his family, like, you know, and, and, um, helped other very involved in the community, which I am. And and so, um, that's my biggest fear is like, it's weird to think about like when you die, like who's all showing up at your funeral? Like you want that place to, you want to have an impact. You want, um, you want to be the guy that, that had it, it had touched a lot of lives and and been a lot of people's lives and, and all for the good. Um, so from a personal standpoint, like that's, that's my number, you know, what's high on the list is, is being a good family guy, good dad, good wife, uh, good husband to my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, a good, good community member, um, for everybody. Great answer, man. Those are yeah. all very important things. And I, I like your idea of like the, to the awareness of those kinds of, you know, conflicting things as, as far as, you know, the, when that encroachment of like, okay, you know, the public lands and like maybe putting too much attention on this, but it, I think you, you bring it out in a balance and wanting you're in the right place, your, your heart and your mind is in the right spot. And I, I think those things all balance out looking at all the conservational, you know, approaches and the things where even that knowing that there's a internal confliction, you know, some people don't even think about those things. They just take, 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 but what can we leave behind for those future generations for our kids, grandkids and seven you know, generations down the line and wanting to improve it. And like you said, there are some things working against this. So it is yep. important. Yeah. I mean, I've ruined some of my own hunting spots with some of our videos and like, all right, now if I did that to myself, like I could do that to other people. And it's just that realization where it's like, wait, we maybe need to rethink our approach or do we really need to film this or, um, you know, anything that's recognizable. So it's, it's tough. And, and I yeah. battle with it all the time. Um, you know, I ask myself all the time, like, why are you taking this picture? And I, maybe I shouldn't like, why are you, why are you building this content? Like, what's the purpose? Does it have a real meaning or is it, to, to get, you know, this many likes and this many comments. And so I'm very, very aware and, and maybe I shouldn't be, but, um, the more I move through and, and get spots ruined or, um, you know, like I was on a deer hunt with my family this year in Montana, nobody will ever see the pictures of it or anything because I met too many people in the area that, and so all it takes is me to post a picture, that guy to comment that like, Hey, I seen you when we were there, he, you know, yeah. somebody looks up where he's from and it's like, well, that's not fair to the people that uh, or around there where that I seen hunting. And so it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird thing that I'm trying to navigate right now. And, uh, yeah. but yeah, legacy wise, like, but I've got to produce that educational content. Like if yeah. I can show somebody how I glass for mule deer or how I approach like a morning in the elk woods, when I've got something located, how I'm going to approach you. So it's that balance of liking to see people find their own success through education, but then not overdoing it or doing it in a respectful way. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's a balance, man. Totally. I hear you. And it's, it's, it's new for us in the social media before, like now anyone can find out where you are very easily. 
you know, it's, it's definitely a, a different world than it was, you know, for us yep. growing up. So yep. no, there's some challenges there. Um, as far as, you know, people wanting to follow your journey and maybe see some of these videos and things too, I know you got a YouTube, you know, you got your website and you got your own personal, you know, pages you can follow. If you can just go ahead and lay out the socials and, and your websites, people can go ahead and follow. Yeah. So, uh, Instagram, we're on there at Phelps game calls. Um, I finally, they talked me into starting my own personal one. So it's at Jason Glenn Phelps, um, is my personal Instagram. Um, we've got Facebook, like, uh, my personal Facebook, I, I'm pretty attent, you know, I'm, I'm on, um, we've got the Phelps game calls, Facebook page. We were on TikTok. We're not real, um, active cause everything always gets flagged for policy violations. You can't have anything in there so we're on tiktok we're not super active and then um yeah our youtube channels at uh, the phelps game calls youtube channel and then a lot of our stuff um like me and steve's elk hunt me and steve's idaho mule deer hunt is on the meat eater youtube channel um as well so we're kind of all over super easy to get access to um our email um i'll give you cutting the distance like if you ever have any questions or want somebody to uh, ask questions for our podcast would be ctd at phelpsgamecalls.com i'm gonna i'm gonna reserve my personal email um yeah, to my, that's fair just so i don't get overloaded there but the <laughs> ctd one gets filtered a little differently so um yeah easy to get a hold of um we, we try to me and dirk are as active on our own accounts as possible we we're usually the ones answering them so uh yeah. And the nice thing about messaging and stuff is, uh, is, you know, just, we can get to them when we can and we usually address you. So it's easier sometimes to get messages than, than you know, or emails. So yeah, sure. yeah. Super available. That's great, man. No, it's, it's, it's very important. Well, thank you so much for coming out and, and kind of sharing part of your journey and, you know, your I, I, I love your calls, man. I'm excited to see all the things you got coming out in the years to come and, uh, you know, all the best with that. And, uh, yeah, man, I, I, Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, George. And uh, we'll 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 have to stay in touch and uh, maybe do it again. Maybe I'll have you on our podcast. Hey, I'd love that. And <laughs> next time you want to come out and hunt in Texas, man, I know you got that whitetail bug. So come on out to one of the ranches I'm running, and uh, you can come in and check it out out here. We'll do. Take care. All right, you too. Yeah, bye.